From the Sammamish Independent, I'm Julia Gudis, your host, and you're listening to Indie On Air. It's Monday, November 2nd, and this week I'm joined by Sarah Dowd to dive into the history of the Electoral College, how the system of choosing our president came to be, and how it impacts us today while also comparing the U.S. to other countries and their process for electing government leaders. By the end of this episode, hopefully you'll have a better understanding of how our presidential elections work and formulate your own opinion on whether this convoluted institution should be kept or changed. So, Sarish, let's talk about the Electoral College. What's one word you'd use to describe it? After all my digging, the one word I would use is complex. I noticed that even if candidates win the nation's popular vote, if they lose the electoral college vote, they won't be president. In fact, presidential candidates have won by popular vote but lost the electoral college five times since 1824, denying them the presidency. Wait, really? So let's back up for a second. What even is the electoral college? So the Electoral College is the, the formula that we use to select our president or the head of the executive branch in the United States. And it's a system where each state gets a certain number of votes or a certain number of electors to represent that state for choosing the president. That was Kieran Jacobson, the AP comparative government teacher at Eastlake High School. This confusing way of electing our leaders has led many Americans to question why we use this system in the first place. Where do we even start? I think the best way to get to the bottom of the history behind the Electoral College is to jump back in time to 1787 during the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. This was when a lot of colonial politicians converged to set the rules on how the new U.S. government should run. The Founding Fathers, the framers of the Constitution, had a lot of trouble figuring out how to choose a chief executive. When they convened in Philadelphia in 1787, they really didn't know how to do it. They disagreed among themselves. They didn't have models. Prevailing model for a chief executive was a monarch, and they knew they did not want a monarch. That was Alex Kazar, the Matthew W. Sterling Jr. Professor of History and Social Policy at Harvard University. During this convention, the Founding Fathers tossed around a bunch of ideas on how a leader should be elected. First, they thought only Congress should be in charge of that, but then realized that it conflicted with the separation of powers. Then, they thought about having a national popular vote, but that was met with more opposition than support, because Americans were worried about uneducated people voting and changing the outcome of the election. And ultimately, at the very end of the convention, the Founding Fathers settled on the Electoral College. Exactly. A system born of compromise. Now, the reason the Electoral College is so convoluted is because it tries to accomplish multiple things at a time. One is that the institution, if you think about the Electoral College, it's kind of a replica of Congress. Each state gets the same amount of representation, but it's a replica of Congress that never legislates. And because it never legislates, it avoids the separation of powers issues. In addition, there's a feature of the Electoral College process called the contingent elections, which we don't think about that much in the 21st century. Contingent elections are what happens when no candidate wins the majority of electoral votes, or if there is a tie. The election immediately devolves upon the House of Representatives with an unusual decision rule. Every state gets one vote, so the smallest states are advantaged 
relative to the largest states there. Right, and although the chance of contingent elections happening is very rare, it's still possible. Another part of the complexity of the Electoral College is its seemingly contradictory aims. On one hand, this institution gives representation to small states, but on the other hand, it's winner-take-all approach, meaning that a candidate that wins the highest popular vote in a state wins 100% of the electoral votes, cancels the votes of the losing candidates in each state. The supporters of the Electoral College argue that the smooth handover between presidencies and the overall stability it provides is unlike anything the world has seen before and contributes to why our nation is so unique. It does give smaller states an outsized voice uh, versus larger states, and that helps keep them kind of bought into the idea that they are part of the United States. Um, If it was just based on population or let's say it was based on popular vote, then the smaller states would be ignored. And so it's a, a way to, again, diffuse that power away from majority states, majority sections of society, spread it out a little bit, and try to give the smaller states kind of a leg up so that they, they still feel bought in. As long as the Electoral College has been around, the question of how to distribute the representation between states is as much of a concern now as it was back in the 1800s, leading some to believe that the Electoral College is still the best solution. But the thing is, if a candidate from a specific party wins a state, all of the electoral votes from that state become theirs. If they lose that state, they get no votes, which is why candidates usually want to win the larger states and often ignore the small ones. They want to get to the goal of 270 electoral votes as efficiently as possible. What we call winner-take-all, most of the framers believed that the most suitable way to choose electors would be to have district elections within each state. And some states did that. The only exception is Maine and Nebraska. They do um, proportional representation. But by the mid to late 1790s, political parties had emerged and were strong, and they began figuring out ways to game the system. And a political party that had a majority in a state came to the conclusion, why should we divide them 13 to 2 if we have a large majority? Let's try to get all of them. So with this logic of competition, winner-take-all emerged, but it was bitterly resisted and it was denounced. So the reality is you can win the popular vote yet still fail to gain the 270 electoral votes? Pretty much, yeah. That means that the winner could have won and collected their electoral votes by small margins, winning just enough states with just enough electoral votes. Basically, critics argue that the system gives an unfair advantage to states that have a larger number of electoral votes, making not every vote equal. But the counter-argument is that the Electoral College protects states with small populations. And as a matter of fact, the system has kept the country stable for over 200 years. Gosh, now I can see why this institution is so controversial. But why can't we just change it? Why is it so hard for reformers to get rid of the Electoral College And how did it come to be so solidified in our nation? And in effect, there are a variety of attempts that come close to passing to mandate districts, to change the contingent system, but they fall short by a pretty small amount. What has happened is that winner-take-all, or the general ticket, is becoming dominant in more and more states. And once nearly all states have gotten to that point, the rest of them fall in line and it creates a kind of equilibrium. 
so that all states are using the system and there's no more changing it around. And once winner take all is in place, it becomes difficult to dislodge. But how does that still apply to us today? Amendments can and have been changed. So if the Electoral College is this convoluted, why can't we just amend it? You know, it's interesting you bring that up because institutions like this are hard to amend. The Founding Fathers wanted to ensure that the original agreements within the 13 colonies couldn't be easily undone. One reason it's been so hard to change the system is again that diffusion of power that's built into the way our institutions are structured. To change it would require an amendment to the Constitution, and that is a super lengthy process. Amending the Constitution requires a two-thirds vote in the House of Representatives and a two-thirds vote in the Senate. So we're talking super majorities here. And then it has to go to the states, and three-fourths of the states will need to ratify that change to the Constitution. So it could be done, but it's just a really high bar. That's a really big hurdle. Um, logistically, it would just be a lot. This actually brings me to add, most other democracies, like Germany or France, pass amendments every couple of years, while the U.S. hasn't passed one since 1992. There had been an enormous number of attempts to change or abolish the Electoral College. Like, the count is rough, but something between 900 and 1,000 constitutional amendments uh, have been introduced into Congress to, to, to alter the system. And it's not a recent discontent. This started in about 1800 and it has continued. Not a decade has passed without some resolutions being introduced in Congress. Professor Kazar has tons of more information about the Electoral College in his book, The Right to Vote, The Contested History of Democracy in the United States, which was named the best book in U.S. history by both the American Historical Association and the Historical Society in 2000. Following the successful release, he published several other books, as well as articles for the press about American politics and history. His latest book, which was published this past July by the Harvard University Press, is titled, Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? We asked the professor what the most surprising thing was during his research for this book. The realization that issues having to do with race and with the maintenance of, of white supremacy uh, in the South played a very large role in preserving the Electoral College. That was a surprise. Wow, so racism played a huge role in preserving the Electoral College. Southern politicians kept blocking reform because they wanted to exercise disproportional power in choosing the president based on population size, while at the same time preventing African Americans from voting. That is super interesting, and it also raises the question of why we should keep it now that we don't have slavery and Jim Crow has been abolished in the South. I wonder how other countries elect their leaders. Are there any similarities? Through my research, I actually found that countries like Pakistan, Burundi, and Madagascar also use indirect electors, but none of them use it to choose their head of government like we do. Britain uses a completely different parliamentary system, and India has electors, but only for its upper house of parliament. Given that the U.S. government is so unique, it allows us to look at the world through a more comparative lens and realize that reforms can be made. Proportional representation. You vote based on the party. You don't vote based on the, on the politician. And what that allows political parties to do is it allows political parties to increase the diversity of the representatives 
because you're not necessarily voting for a person, you're voting for a party. Countries around the world that have this type of system, so you have higher representation of minority groups, both ethnic minorities and also women and also um, LGBTQI voices. So it's kind of working against people's implicit bias. And if you can take that away by having people vote for a party instead, it actually increases representation of minority folks in government. In Nigeria, Nigeria is a super diverse country. And so you have people of all different ethno-linguistic um, backgrounds. And so to ensure that the president of Nigeria represents all the people, in order to win, amidst this idea that they have to have national appeal, they can't just appeal to their corner of Nigeria. And I think that's really interesting and something that maybe we could consider in the thought experiment for the U.S. Now, if we look at the United States, Julia, do you think reforms in the Electoral College are possible in the near future to make Americans more inclined to support it? You know, that's a hard one because, like we mentioned earlier, it's a really tough process to make changes. I think really a lot of things have to be aligned. And, you know, we've learned again and again, you know, in 1969-70, we came very close. There are ample reasons to look at the record and be pessimistic. But what I do see out in the world today is a stronger pro-democracy movement, especially, but not entirely among the young, a, a movement to try to democratize many of our institutions than, than, than there has been at any point since the 1960s. Now, our country is considered a democracy, meaning one person, one vote. However, our founding fathers went into the Constitutional Convention with a strong preference for indirect democracy with the Electoral College weighing the impact of smaller states more, while effectively disenfranchising voters who support the losing candidate in a state, is the system actually democratic, or is it consistent with the Founding Fathers' ideals? The Electoral College is not democratic. I mean, it's broadly representative, but I think the notion that in a democracy, all of our votes count the same is a pretty important principle. And the Electoral College doesn't match that. In two respects, one is that because of the allocation of electors, the distribution of electors, the citizens of some small, relatively small states ha- carry more weight in choosing electors than do citizens of, of, of larger states. I don't think it's democratic. Tomorrow is election day. Every four years, the Electoral College comes to the forefront and every news outlet repeats the same tradition of reporting results from each state, counting up the electoral votes, and anticipating who gets to the magical 270-vote threshold to win the White House. We wanted to do this episode to learn about how this convoluted system of choosing our president came to be, why it's stuck around for so long, and whether there are better, more democratic systems out there to replace it. As we step back and look at our country's history, it's filled with new movements and change. We went from a loose confederation of states and became one nation under a federal system. We added 27 amendments to our constitution, and we gradually made our government more democratic with direct elections for senators and presidential electors by state. Eventually, that right to vote was extended beyond white males to include every single citizen. The voting rights we enjoy today have been a result of activists who have agitated for change throughout history, and we should never take our freedom for granted. Thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us today, Professor Kazar. It's been a pleasure to be here, and uh, I've enjoyed talking with you, and I hope that your, 
your listeners will enjoy this program, and I hope that those who are age eligible will go out and vote on November 3rd. Thank you so much for sitting down with us today, Mr. Jacobson. Well, thank you so much for having me um, on your show. It's great to see that young people are really taking an interest in democracy. Um, yeah, and before I go, I just want to stress that actually democracy is kind of under attack around the world right now. If you look at the data over the last 15 years, we've been seeing net declines in individual freedoms and the ability to vote around the world. And so it's something that we kind of need to be aware of as we navigate through through modern life and really kind of fight for this system that has actually delivered the best life outcomes of any government system that's ever been come up with. Like it's not a great system, but it's the best of the worst systems we have. And so I guess before we go, I just want to remind everyone that it's a really a privilege to live in a democracy and it's a right that we should take seriously and something that we should continue to fight for and protect. Don't just take it for granted. Here's what else you need to know this week. The Sammamish City Council has a special meeting tonight, November 2nd, and on November 10th, both starting at 6.30 p.m. Due to COVID-19 restrictions, the council chamber is closed to the public, but you can watch the council meeting at sammamish.us forward slash TV21 and submit public comments by emailing the city or dialing into the meeting. Join the Eastlake High School PTSA at their 27th annual Holiday Bazaar from Saturday, November 7th to Friday, November 13th. Due to COVID-19 restrictions, this will also be taking place online. You can find it on the Eastlake PTSA website or go to bazaar.ehsptsa.org to shop from over 50 vendors. Also, don't forget to drop off your voting ballots by tomorrow at 8 p.m. in front of City Hall. This episode of Indie on Air was produced by Julia Gudis, Sarah Stoud, Mahek Sate, Aditya Kunchwar, and Lin Yang. Our theme music was created by Ben Allright. Special thanks to Professor Alex Kazar and Kieran Jacobson for taking the time to speak with us. And that's this week's episode of Indie on Air. Don't forget to join us in two weeks to discuss one of our favorite meals of the year. You guessed it, the Thanksgiving feast. Until then, I'm Julia Gudis. Stay safe and go vote.